This program is brought to you by the Gin Society, www.ginsociety.com. Hello and welcome to Lunch with Lee. I'm your host Shane Lee. Today on the show, Mark Gable, an Australian musician, singer, songwriter and the founding member of the rock band The Choir Boys. And he's an ambassador of the Beyond Blue Foundation. And Rob Palmer, also a Northern Beaches lad. Rob is a television presenter, radio host and carpenter by trade. He's won eight Logies as part of the Better Homes and Gardens TV show. Also now hosts The Breakfast Show on 107.7 on the Central Coast. And he's an ambassador with the Juvenile Diabetes Research Foundation. Let's get started. On the show today, Mark Gable, an Australian musician, singer and songwriter and the founding member of the rock band The Choir Boys. Welcome, Mark. Woo! Shane, how are you, mate? Very good, thanks, mate. And Rob Palmer, television presenter, radio host and carpenter by trade. Welcome, Rob. Hey, Shane. I didn't know you were from the Central Coast. Sorry, Shane. I know you've got questions That's to right. ask, but Fire away. We'll, we'll get into that later, okay? <laughs> Let's back to the show. But, and, um, Mark, how are you going, mate? So, it's a pretty tough time for a musician, I'm, I'm sure, at the moment. It is particularly tough, and I've like been talking to a few friends of mine, um, you know, with their road crews and what I think the people that worked in the road crew are, uh, and if you don't know what road crew are, they're the people that carry amplifiers and push black boxes, right? And then they uh, hit the audience with sticks if they're misbehaving. Yeah, I've been hit. You've been hit. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I can imagine. And um, because the whole industry's fallen over, it's been hard on an emotional level, I think, for the you know, the performers as well as the crews, right? So the impact is quite alarming, really, when I'm looking, on, particularly on Facebook. And, you know, so I'm going through the process of everybody I know calling them up or texting them, checking on them. That's a good idea, yeah. Because I'm, you know, I'm going out of my mind as well. I mean, look at me. I mean, oh, you can't see it in a podcast, can you? No, no you can't. Oh, well, you, wait, imagine this. <laughs> yeah. I'm going out of my mind. Yep. <laughs> and Robert, we're, we're, we're good mates. We play golf together every now and then. We'll, we'll talk about that soon. But um, yeah, great. But um, how does a bloke end up? You're, you're, a, you're a sporty guy at school. Played your rugby and that, and you're you're a carpenter by trade. How, how do you end up in the media? It was awkward to start with. I was. It was year ten when I got first got in trouble at school. Well, maybe not first, but I, they put me in detention. And detention when that day was to go to drama auditions. So my mate and I d- took the Mickey out of drama auditions, completely thinking that this was a laugh. And we ended up with lead roles in the play for year ten at school. All right. So I ended up doing Henry Granville Barker's The Voice of the Inheritance at age sixteen. It was like a five act mega leaf. Um, play and and I loved it. Had a great time. So we then wow. started doing plays after that for fun. And I did a couple after school, a couple of musicals, just for you know kicks and giggles. And and I ended up a mate of mine was going for a run and he saw me and he goes, "Oh Rob, my mate's cousins, you know, mate's boss needs a guy for a show who's a carpenter and won't fall apart in front of a camera." And he goes, "You do carpentry, don't you?" And I said, "Yeah." And he knew I'd done the school plays, so he said, "You should try." And I did. I got this woman came around with a camera one day and got me up in mum's attic. I was still living at home. And I had to take a door off. There was one door that was sticking. So I went and took it off. I said, yeah, this is how you do it. You know, you just get your plane. You slide it along like that. Easy ass. And then you come, you put it back on. I went to put it back on. And it was all upside down. So I was trying to work out why the hinges wouldn't fit back in the holes. And I was doing it upside down. So I said, oh, that's a shame. 
And um, and that was my demo tape, and they they gave me a job, and that was about two thousand. So you failed at carpentry, failed, and succeeded <laughs> at, in media. The carpenter found his jazz hands. Well, the, amazing. The carpentry, <laughs> I do love jazz hands, but carpentry was the first thing because my dad and my grandfather were all build, builders. My uncle, my brother, were all builders, and so I was sort of destined to go down that road. And I liked it and I could do it, but really of my heart was making a fool of myself and uh, that's where I ended up landing. Yeah, that's you're making a fool of yourself in media is very important. <laughs> yeah, yeah, well... And Mark, growing up for you, was, um, yeah, you're purely a creative guy. You're in your photography. Was, was, was music always going to be your thing? I think it was, you know, because I was uh, 13 and I won't tell you what year that was, 1963, um, and the Beatles arrived. Did I said the year, didn't I? The Beatles arrived and I went, that looks easy <laughs> because I'm dyslexic, or at least my mother presumed that I was dyslexic because I get letters around the wrong way, like, you know, uh, spelling a word like Shane, for instance, uh, you know, the A and the, you know. Really? You write them backwards? Yeah. Well, you know what I mean? I see, you know, it, I'll look at words, right, and I'll go, that, can you swear on this show? Swear, swear away. Well, you know, I, I think, well, I couldn't think of a swear word, but, you know, I think it says <laughs> something like, you know, dysfunctional, debauchery, you know, um, bottom hole, you know, when it actually says... Shane. Yeah, you know, it says <laughs> McDonald's, you know, Shane. Right. But anyway, the point being is I thought... I'll do, I looked at the Beatles, right, and I remember looking at Paul McCartney and going, he looks so happy, you know. i I got to do this, you know. This looks like it's a lot of fun, you know. And I was very shy around girls, so I just started doing music. And look, I can even remember the first song that I wrote when I was 17, and I'm going to sing you a bit of it now because it, just, it came back to... No, it's not fantastic. It came <laughs> back to me, like, all uh, about a month ago. Please be my evil Sunday, preaching us to me right now. No, what? I don't know the rest of the song. Don't quite understand what just got said. I just said, please be my evil Sunday. <laughs> yeah, right. Preach innocence to me right now. That's genius. You spend, I already spent some time with yourself there. Yeah. <laughs> but that's the only, only bit that I can remember of the song. Curtains were drawn? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so talk me through, it must have been some fun times, the music in the 80s, being, being on, the, on the rock scene, touring around. Mm. Can you remember much of it or...? Nah, I can't. (laughs) What's your name? Look, I took it for granted. You know, some people didn't take it for granted. But I, like I guess most of us, we thought it was going to go on forever. And um, sadly, once it got into the 90s, you know, the last great rock and roll band, of course, was Nirvana. um, And after that, it just went downhill rapidly, you know. So we, um, I took it for granted. We all thought it was going to last forever. Um, and, and we did because it came, you know, through the 50s and 60s and through the 70s, pub music, and then 80s. It was halcyon days because everybody used to go and see a pub and a band. Uh, no, they used to go see a band in a pub. I sounded like Joe Biden then. Um, <laughs> yes, that's right. That's right, yeah. I saw that. You remember, yeah. Um, and so it was what we all did, you know. It was like six days a week there were bands on. And we just thought it was going to last forever, and it didn't. Uh, and it was just such an amazing time. I remember seeing the first time, the first time I saw the Divinals on a Tuesday night at the DY Hotel, right? And you know, Ian, our bass player, Link, we call him. He goes because he cut his hair off and looked like a monkey, missing Link. Anyway, <laughs> another story. He goes, "Oh, you got to come see this band. You know, he's got this chick singer. They're amazing." And I was like, "Oh my God, this is Australia." 
and there's this amazing band on stage and it was like 200 people, you know, a standing ovation. A standing ovation at the DY Hotel Tuesday night, right, for a bloody a rock and roll band, you know. It was an incredible time. That's cool. Did you realise that it was, when you say it doesn't last forever, did it just, did, was it a slow wind down? Did you say, like, was it or just something all of a sudden it stopped? Well, I think they legislated against live music because of, you know, the problems of people urinating and defecating in neighbours of pubs, gardens, right? And they, people don't yeah, right. like poo and wee in their gardens, right? And all the disturbances, you know? And I think that, look, you know, that's part of it. You know, smoking laws, you couldn't drink and drive anymore. Oh, yeah, it was fun in the 70s. Hi, cops, love you. You know, you couldn't do that anymore. Yeah. You associate a rock gig with freedom, don't you? And yeah. Just doing whatever you want and it's going wild for that night. Yeah. But, Trob, you love your music as well, and this is not quite rock and roll, but you did a, a Bing Crosby show, didn't you? <laughs> yes. Oh, wow. <laughs> a little tribute to Bing Crosby. Can you give us a bit? Oh. Come on. Um, uh, what have we got? Better hurry. Oh, give me land, lots of land under starry skies above. Don't fence me in. Let me ride through the wide open yonder. I'm feeling la, a bit la, la. funny inside. <laughs> Don't fence me in. Mark's just heading to the garden, everyone. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, it was Pink Crosby. It was for the Blue Rinse Brigade, and it was a lot of fun. Magic. I loved it. We did a little story. It was sort of me as a fan of Bing Crosby, not me as Bing Crosby, because no one can sing. Like Bing Crosby, he's got this this amazing crooning voice that just, you know, I don't know, it's so penetrating. But I'd just get up there and tell a story about, oh, yeah, I'm this and I did that. And, you know, I was talking about better homes and gardens, talking about just me getting on with life and finding this Bing Crosby who I thought, who's this? And then listened to a few songs and got to like it and then shared my experience of loving Bing Crosby with the crowd. And it was good. Going back to the to the front of the uh, the podcast when you said that it was quite by accident that you got into the media and you're singing away there and I'm going yeah I'm sold <laughs> and it's, it's just amazing you start out on one thing then you end up being on stage singing to the Blue Rinse set you kind of you find your role eventually I think you, yeah. see, you know if you if you're not scared to try stuff and that's what you know, I'd like kids to be able to be confident to try stuff that's different that they don't feel is mainstream because kids yeah. can often get pigeonholed into something that they feel that they're pressured into and not really let their their you know their heart shine and let their let their love for whatever they really care for that's an important thing. drive them and so you know I think kids really need to be able to be confident enough to tell their parents and their mates what what drives them what they like and yeah. have that accepted not not ragged on yeah that's good because I know um a 47-year-old cricketer who wanted to be a stripper. <laughs> we all have our limitations. <laughs> yeah, and they, they, his parents, you know, and his family, friends, you know, and all his cricket mates wouldn't let no. him do no. it. No. I think he's broken hearted because... Well, I think he does it anyway. I know. I don't know how to stick mainstream. Anyway, we'll get back to the show. <laughs> Mark, I want to thank you, mate, because um, I remember the choir boys growing up for me, but that was one of the, the first real Australian bands and, and the song Run to Paradise, which I actually used to think was about... I thought the song was about heroin, but it was an anti-drug song, wasn't it? Well, it was, it was really just an observation of Northern Beach's lifestyle. Yeah. Because I could never understand how so many young people could be stoned all the time and drink so much beer. And we were all living in paradise. And I was teetotaler. I never drank, never smoked dope, never did anything like that. And the amount of people that were like high as kites, and I'd go, wow, 
you know, you've got everything here, Look but you've you still got to escape. Yeah. It just amazed me. So it was really just everything that I saw growing up on the northern beaches of Sydney. And that, that song would have changed the lives for yourself and for the band, I'm assuming. Was that your first big hit? Well, yeah, you know, it was our first big hit, yeah. yeah. And it, it changed the life of a young girl that I met. I think it was Alice Springs because we were doing shows out there and her mother brought her along. And Look, I don't remember her name. Her name was Alison, right? And the lady said, Mark, this is my daughter Alison and I made her with a father in the back of a Holden listening to Run to Paradise. <laughs> That's it. I wonder if Run to Paradise got him there or if it was if he was on the way there. You never know. I, 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 I don't know if we get through the four-bar intro. <laughs> <laughs> Don't be disgusting. <laughs> so, no, the point being is that it's like people have told me some amazing stories. That one just sticks in my mind because it's funny. And it was sure I remember looking at the daughter and she was mortified that her mother had dragged along to tell me this story. But nonetheless, you know, there she was, evidence of the fact. But I think that, you know, the song means more to people out there than it does to me. I went through the pain of writing it and recording it and it was wasn't easy. You know, I had to revisit it a couple of times to get it the way I wanted, you know, but it's like people out there, they go, I just love that song and they dance to it and it's easier for them, I think. Taking you back to those days when you were talking about you couldn't believe how people were escaping and, you know, mm. being lazy and the bludgers and you're living in paradise. When you had that hit, did that change your perspective on, on your world then? Well... Did you want more? No, I don't think it changed my perspective. I think it made things harder, you know, because it's one thing... I think there are several artists that are, that are very good at having hits. I would be really good at it now, right? Really, really good at it. At having but them. <laughs> having hits, right? Yeah. But I've learned a lot, you know, and I think that's why In Excess was so good and U2 was so good and, you know, Midnight Oil, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. There, there's a difference between striving to have a hit and then having a hit, you know, and I just wasn't really keen on being chased down the street by people, you know. Yeah. It's him! Yeah. Hey, Mark! You know, and I go, gee, you know. <laughs> now I go, come here. <laughs> Give us a hug. Give me a hug, you COVID <laughs> bastards. <laughs> we'll hold it there for a minute and we'll be back right after this. It's no secret I love a gin. And one of our sponsors here, Lunch with Lee, is the Gin Society, which I happen to be a member of. When you sign up, they'll send you a full size bottle of amazing craft gin delivered to your door every two months, plus the latest issue of their beautiful Gin Journal magazine and a surprise gift absolutely free. Each gin is sourced by a team of experts looking for exclusive, unique and exquisite drops from around the world. A subscription to the Gin Society is your passport to the world of craft gin. No strings attached. Cancel any time. Check out the website, www.ginsociety.com. All listeners of Lunch With Lee can enjoy an exclusive $20 off their order when they join the Gin Society. Simply visit www.ginsociety.com and just use the code LUNCHWITHLEE20 at checkout. Spartan Sports is recognised as one of the world's most exciting and innovative sporting brands with a community focus. Our product range across cricket, rugby, football, volleyball, basketball and fitness has been developed to sell directly to any club, school, corporate or individual. Go to our website and order directly to your front door, www.spartansports.com. Spartan Sports, unearth the warrior in you. John O'Brien is a legend of Australia's beer industry. 
In 2003, he dreamed of producing a great-tasting beer that could be enjoyed by everyone, free from the ill effects of mass-produced wheat and barley. John began a brewing journey blending unique aromas and flavours offered by ancient grains such as sorghum and millet. He perfected recipes over time which have led to 40 local and international awards, including three gold medals at the Australian International Beer Awards, a gold medal at the Indies and a silver medal at the Beer World Cup. Proudly 100% Aussie-owned, made in Ballarat, O'Brien Beer is Australia's most awarded gluten-free beer and widely available around Australia through major retailers and online at rebellionbrewing.com.au. O'Brien Beer, the beer that loves your back. Now, Rob, I want to talk, talk me through your Dancing with the Stars experience. You won that, was it two, three years ago? <laughs> oh, it's how the hell are you going now? Marching back now, 2010. What's it that long ago? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, I did that with Melinda Schneider, Mark's My very partner. own. Your partner, yes. So I was there every time. <laughs> oh, that's how you I two boys know each other. I had breakfast with him on more than 10 occasions. <laughs> <laughs> it was weird. Yeah, wasn't it? But, um, oh, geez, that was something else. It was, it was completely out of the blue. We got, I was on holidays with my family over in Wales. My wife's Welsh. So we were over there with – we had two kids at the time. And the phone rang. It was Channel 7. They said, oh, mate, do you want to do Dancing with the Stars? I said, fantastic. Let's do that. And they said, oh, we need you back next week. I was like, oh. So I was obviously the replacement guy because <laughs> yeah. you don't tell the guy you want to do it the week before it starts. No. So like, right, anyway, so I'll, yeah, I'll do that. I'll swallow my pride. I'm coming back. So I went back. When the kids stayed over there, which was an absolute godsend, that they stayed in Wales yeah. for, the, for the first four weeks of dancing because, you know, you're very close to another person sure. for a long time. Yeah. Um, I was dancing with Alana Patience and she um, – Happily named? Yeah, yeah, well, it was. I, I knew I didn't know how to dance, so it was – you know, I could turn them around at a – at a wedding, yeah. that, that was only after six jars of confidence, and, yeah. you know, a couple of speeches. But it would just go and you just embrace knowing nothing and just say, okay, I'm going to clean the slate, go out there and say, I just want to learn whatever you're going to tell me. And I think for me it was about um, laughing at myself after the dance mm. rather than getting upset by Todd McKenney throwing rocks at me. I would, you know, laugh laugh with Todd McKenney throwing rocks at me and throw a couple back. So, yeah, it was, it was, a, it was a big experience. And the, the cast got on so well. I think it seemed like the first time that everyone just partied all the time. Every Sunday night was like New Year's Eve, wasn't it? Yeah, particularly it was the girls that partied. So I think we all went to a pub at one point and I was like watching all the the, the females in the cast, whereas one does, you know, because I'm not dead, you know, <laughs> and my partner was in there as well. But, you know, I'm like, I'm going, God, these girls are berserk. Yeah. They were, everybody, they were having a ball. And the partners, yeah. the dancing partners were incredible. Boy, they worked hard. They really, oh, like they, I said. They worked so hard. They had to work up against, you know, people that didn't know how to dance and I was watching this stuff and it was really quite amazing to watch watch them all go through. And I made some good friends, you know, down there as well. And I'm acting like I was on the show. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you were. As far as I'm concerned, we were in it together. You propped me up every Saturday morning when we'd have to do these run-throughs. You'd be there for the whole weekend. So it'd be 40 hours. Towards the end, it was 40 hours of dancing plus the show on the weekend every week plus your job. I remember, watch, I remember watching that series and it was like every time you forgot your dance move, you just lifted her above your head. <laughs> it's like, put her on the throw. <laughs> there was secret code for when I'd forget something. Like, you know, there was a twitch of the wrist that way, I'd twitch of that. She had this eye movement she'd do. Because you, you, 
basically it was muscle memory. I didn't know how to dance. You go out after the after dancing happened, everyone would expect that you knew all these dances. I didn't know anything. I knew a minute thirty of ten various programs, and you had to learn it each step, one after the other, and you did it so often that you couldn't forget it. So you sort of didn't know how to dance. You just knew how to follow the choreography, and that that was it. I think it's, I think it's magnificent. I like just. The visual of you taking off your, your, your work boots and slipping all your ballet flats. It's a, it's a great and the, visual. And the tights. <laughs> the tights. The tights. I wore one of those um, special dancers' cod pieces. No, no, not a cod piece. What do they call it? A ballet support. Right. Like, yeah, you'd have to strap yourself up because they were putting us in. Ballet there. support? Yeah, ballet support. What, what for like grand, granddaddy balls? Well, you need – no. <laughs> No, just to, just, just to – Grandfather just, clock. Just to tuck it in. Just so you don't oh, get – Oh, so you, know, you don't like have a, a like a uh, – this, yeah, you, you don't know, can't you, see bits. If you're in tight pants and you're not wearing the ballet support, things move around a bit. Right. You know, and you don't want an accident happening out there. No, particularly when you're dancing close. No. <laughs> <laughs> well, my dance partner said to me once, I was I was quite nervous coming into the rumba because it's a real it's a real up close and personal kind of dance. And I was just struggling big time. We got to Wednesday, the thing shows on Sunday, and I had, could not get it at all. So my dance partner, Gwen had come back to Australia at this stage, she called her, said, Come in here, he needs your help. And so she's turned up to the dance practice while I'm trying to manufacture some sort of yeah, you know how'd, how'd that go for you? faux lust <laughs> sham lust, sham lust. Uh, so I had sham lust going on and there's my wife and I'm like oh, geez what are you doing and she said I want you to look at her as though you can't live without her she need it she's your breath she's your everything I went right oh there's the instructions boss that's and, a wrap and then, <laughs> <laughs> then we went for it and it sort of changed something so she said to me guys if if I can't feel you on my leg then you're not close enough and I went right well, okay wow okay so, so we packed the awkwardness away and from that moment I think it got easier yeah did you get like a little bit you know like woody <laughs> sometimes you <laughs> Oh, no, no, you need to no, say no. No, of course not. It's like throwing a rad break here. Hey, um, Rob, you've always been someone that's really followed your, your passions, um, but you, you were diagnosed with type 1 diabetes at the age of seven, and you're now an ambassador for the Juvenile Diabetes Research Foundation. Foundation. Yeah, 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 you do a lot of good work there. So talk us through, that must have been tough as a kid, because you, your mum had to wake you up every night, didn't she? Yeah. How do you sleep? Yeah, well, I meeting. don't know how parents do it. I think it's harder for parents than it is for kids, because... I'm lucky my kids don't have it at, you know, at this stage. But yeah. mum, when I was seven, she would get up every night and you'd have to check a blood sugar on a child. And then if the blood sugar came back lower than expected, they'd have to give you food and try and feed a seven-year-old at two in the morning you know, when he's, he doesn't want to sleep. You've just stabbed him in the finger with a pricker, drawn some blood out, and then you're telling him to eat a banana. And you go, Mum, I'm not doing this. I've told my mum I hated her on more than a thousand occasions when she would do this in the middle of the night. But as a kid, you don't know what you're saying, right? And it must have really hurt her to hear mm. to hear that because she was just doing what she needed to do. But um, she'd then have to then go to bed and get up half an hour later or stay up and check the sugar to make sure it'd come to where it needed to be. And if it was too high in the night, she'd have to give you an insulin injection so that it would come down and then you would be able and then have to check it again. So there must have been nights where mum and dad or dad didn't sleep. I mean, it would have been pretty hard as a parent for a kid. But they were very supportive and they said to me, go and play sport. I want you to do everything. There was nothing that they said that I shouldn't do. And I've always sort of considered that diabetes, you can make it as a silent partner kind of thing. So that if I take care of my side of the books, then the silent partner disappears into the background of your life. And yeah. it's there, but it doesn't really control anything you do. And I would never say no to something because of diabetes. It's, you know, it's something that you can, 
it's always there and it's a pain in the ass because you have to, you know, it's daily injections. And, and, you, and you wear the you wear a little um, well, now, device now. Yeah. I, thought, I thought it was I thought you were just behind the times it was a pager, but it's not. <laughs> That's not a pager. It's a bit big. They could make them smaller, but it's an insulin pump and it's, it sticks into me, so I can plug it in and plug it out. This little insulin pump, and it just you know, click it in. You got a plug on you. Yeah. So it's not a plug, really. It's like a little cannula that sits under your skin. And this pump monitors via a Bluetooth from a little button that I wear on my backside. So you've got a button on the bum. Button on the bum with a little hair that plug sticks on the your gut. body. And that picks yeah. up what your glucose level is. And it sends a signal to the pump to tell it what your blood sugar is. And then the pump makes an assessment, says this is how much insulin you need. And it's like having a pancreas on the outside of your body. So this didn't exist when I was you know, first diagnosed, but it does now. And I tell you what, it's saved. I haven't had, I used to pass out all the time. I'd walk down, you know, and just collapse on the floor and start convulsing. I remember the first time I went away with my wife, now wife and my father-in-law, we went up the Hunter Valley. We're sitting there having a glass of wine with dinner and I just had had too much insulin and not eaten enough food. And all of a sudden it hit me like a stone. I dropped to the floor, I was bashing my head on the ground and you know, and he was sitting there trying to hold me and he's gone far out. Which know, wouldn't yeah. be easy to do looking at you. No, no, when you're moving around fast. Bloody hell. Yeah. You know, but the, the moment I knew that I needed more help than my own management with insulin and, and blood sugar tests was to, to get the pump was when I did it in front of my own kids. You know, the youngest was two and I'd made soup for the kids and I'm bringing soup over to the table thinking this is a great soup, kids, you're going to love this. I put it down on the table then... One of them wanted garlic bread with it, and because you just say yes when you're a dad, and, yeah. and you just want—I don't want arguments. So yeah, we'll put it in, <laughs> put the garlic bread in. Just hold on, we'll get the soup in a second. We'll get the garlic bread ready. And my insulin had started working too fast. And as I came over with the garlic bread, I've dr- hit the ground. Gwen was in the shower upstairs. I didn't even know she was it's home. Frightening for the kids. But the kids saw their dad shaking on the ground, bashing my head. I had a bruise. My face was purple, and I woke up. The next thing I remember was an ambulance officer, the next-door neighbour, my wife all standing over me, and my daughter just crying, saying, oh, Daddy, I'm man. sorry I didn't get you a pillow. So, you know, because I was black in the face, I had bashed myself senseless. And that was the moment that I said, said I've got to use all the medical help I can to make sure that this doesn't happen again. Yeah, wow. so one of the things we try and do on Lunch With Lee, whilst I get on the show, you know, sportsmen or musicians or business people, the underlying theme we like to talk about is, is men's health, and, that, and that's a really important message you said there. Mark, you had pretty sort of public, open bouts with your own personal depression. Mm. How had you, you experienced that? You're, you're now an ambassador of Beyond Blue? Yes, well, you know, the, the, let's say that it was mm, self-induced, and also there's an interpretation in my mind that um, we might mix up depression with grieving about certain circumstances in our lives, and I think that, you know, uh, when the career wasn't going well and the marriage wasn't going well, I decided we were going to Germany to record an album. So I thought that I'm going to be Keith Richards, you know, for as long as I need to be. So, you know, it was drugs and alcohol and, you know, all that kind of thing from the day that I got on the plane to 13 years later, right? And 13 years later, I woke up one afternoon after missing, on a Monday, after missing an appointment with the kids doing something for the kids and I went, something's broken <laughs> and I just realised I couldn't drink or do drugs or anything like that ever again and that's when I stopped. It's amazing how powerful your love for your kids is too. When yeah. it, it's part of the trigger, it sounds like. It is, yeah, because um, the love for our kids is real love. You know that, you know when you're with someone and you go, 
and I'm looking in your eyes, Rob, and I go, I love you. I like this. You know, and I, you know, you look pretty in that dress. Yeah, I can see and, you deep know, I love behind you. those eyes. You don't you, quite mean it in the same way. Do you guys way. want me to leave? No, no, no. We're only acting. <laughs> Shane, go you're good. next. <laughs> We're only acting, Mr Lee. We're only acting. Um, that's lust. You know, that's reproduction. That's the way I call it. But so um, the love for the kids is very important because you realise you're letting them down and all the rest of it and, you know, you're a schmuck. And, and so, but it was easy, bang, just one day. And so... It was a week before that that I'd seen a couple of sports people who were ambassadors for yes. Beyond Blue on telly, right? And they're going, you know, we've had depression because, I mean, I don't know why sports people would have depression. It's not like it's an arduous job, you know? <laughs> you know, like <laughs> having to train every day and having to win all the time, having to deal with losing. But, you know, there they were talking about it and I went, Maybe that's what I got a few years before because I had about a few years before. Um, and then when it hit me, I went, aha, depression. So you reckon the visibility, and because it's been spoken about a lot more, and that's what I like is that yeah, it's yeah. not something that people need to hide behind or, or, or be ashamed of because it's visible and it's understood that this is an illness that can really, you know, can really hurt you. And to see that and to be able to use that, that visibility of others for you to say, okay, this is where I'm at. Well, it worked a treat for me because uh, obviously with men, right, it's a, we're meant to be strong, right, and, you know, we're meant to be leaders, you know, and nothing ever goes wrong. And so, you know, we, we're constantly having to think, you know, this is not being a man. What am I crying for, you know? And, and it, as a result of that, and I know one friend in particular who – took his own life and no one knew you know he didn't tell anybody right so that that was that's the thrust behind beyond blue is to uh, initially to express it to men visibility for men so that they uh, would be aware that it's okay to talk about it or to start making it okay to talk about it. Particularly in the music scene, because you're right, you hear a lot of ex-sportsmen talking openly about it now, but you don't necessarily hear musicians talking about it. No, because... Well, what's the reason behind I, that, there, I don't know what the reason is. I haven't figured it out, but yeah. I know several yeah. that I believe, and once again, I'm not a medical practitioner, that I believe that have depression but won't deal with it find it hard to be responsible for it. And I guess a lot of it has got to do with lifestyle. Okay, you you know, it, you reckon? We, you're, if you're a cricketer yeah. or a sports person, you don't go, oh, I just think I'll get bloody drunk, mate, and, you know, buy some cocaine or something. Yeah. You know, you don't do that. But with uh, rock and roll, it's like you have this heart and parcel of what it is and everybody's doing it. Yeah, within no, one, no one's peeing in a cup, yeah. are they? And I guess I was probably the first one, at least in Australia, to come out and say, I've had depression, but... You know, Bruce Springsteen, he had depression. When you listen to his lyrics, you go, he's been open with it. He's gone, look, I've had depression and I had it real bad, you know. And this is when he was a billionaire, right, hugely successful, you know, because you go, what am I doing here? What's my purpose? With the experience you've got now, what advice would you give to a young musician if they were sitting across the table and they said, give me some advice about how I go into a music career? What would you say to them? Well, there's two levels of advice. There's Michael Stipe from... um, REM had great advice and he said that don't eat broccoli before a photo shoot. Yeah. Um, and or quinoa. Hey? Or quinoa. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> Any of that, you know. <laughs> but, don't try and spell that. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but then, you know, like I say, with the humorous side of it, you go, don't do it, right? Because people think that it's easy because they don't fit into the normal world. Uh, it's not easy. 
It's extremely difficult and it's arduous and emotionally stressful. It can be very rewarding and a whole lot of fun, you know, like entertaining audiences. It's just amazing. Yeah, but you've got to survive while you're not getting paid too, don't you? Well, that's right, you know, and that's been very tough and that's why I want that $10,000 in my <laughs> And I've said it publicly now. Um, But the advice is that you have to be passionate about it, almost psychotic. You know, you, I'm just doing this. I don't care who says what, I'm just doing it and I'll keep on going and keep doing it. But remember that there are pitfalls, there are things that go wrong. It's, It's fraught with problems. You know, it's not an easy industry and there's very few people that survive and come out of it the other end. Um, and, you know, it's like every other industry in, in the world is regulated to a degree. This is the only industry I know that still works on, you know, Gestapo lines or should I say mafia lines. You know, it's unregulated and it's extremely difficult to navigate. And Rob, what, what, um, what advice would you give a young kid who wants to go into, say, the media industry? Well, it's pretty – you've got to really like it. Yeah. <laughs> you've got to really like it. It's sort of one of those things. But as far as I'm concerned, going into media was one of the most fun things I've ever done because I loved it. And I didn't follow a rule book as such. It was sort of – I was lucky because what I was doing was carpentry on TV. They just said, to, to build stuff. Do what, you, do what you can do, but do it in a way you love doing it. So I was sort of mixing carpentry and performing together to just to be myself on telly. And I felt like the luckiest kid in the world. And me and uh, Jason Hodges and I would look at each other and just go, we have been kissed on there. You know, like you're a landscaper, I'm a carpenter, and here we are just doing this show for, for fun. And, and sp- so speaking of entertainment, Mark, where can we hear you at the moment? Can we hear you doing, doing sessions online or are you doing anything like that? Well, what we did was two weeks ago, Quiet Boys did our first live stream. Fantastic. And, I, and we had a ball. You know what? It's the future. I don't think we're ever going to leave our houses again. <laughs> right, that sounds awesome. <laughs> because we've got mating uh, software now, right? We just and we really don't even have to meet people to have babies anymore. You could just send deli- it in the post. Yeah, deliver in a paper cup. It's right? just got to yeah. keep it yeah. cold. That's the hardest thing. Aussie isn't it? Post will probably won't get there on time. <laughs> <laughs> Refrigerated well, that- truck sales are gone right up. <laughs> there is going to be some COVID-friendly gigs next year. I heard word on the street is that um, I think it was Marsha Hines and uh, and a few other a few other acts are doing COVID-safe gigs for certain venues that have to register as COVID-safe venues, and they'll be able to get gigs back on stage for people. Well, I'm doing a COVID-safe gig next Saturday at Lazotte's up in Newcastle. Yeah, beautiful. And it's the great rock and roll stories show that I've done once, right? And I tell all the stuff about all the rock and roll people that, you know, they don't want me to tell. Put it this way, when I first did the show and I posted it posted it on Facebook, Steve Kilby, the singer, bass player, from, songwriter from the church, goes, don't mention me on, on the post, right? So there are people that... Don't want me to mention them, but I will anyway. Yeah, you do good. it. You do it. I don't care. I don't care what I say about them and as long as I make money out of them. I'm joking. <laughs> well, boys, I want, to, I want to thank you both for coming on the show. I want to thank you. Um, keep up doing the good, good work, mate, you're doing with the Juvenile Diabetes Research Foundation and Beyond Beautiful. Blue, Mark, as well, mate, and I really do appreciate it. And we'll put up on our socials um, that stuff you're streaming so our listeners can go, go to it and listen and um, hear some of those interesting stories, mate. Oh, yeah. Thanks, Sano. Thank you. That's it for Lunch with Lee this week. A big thank you goes out to our guest, Mark Gable. And Rob Palmer, thanks to Hilton Headley for your hard work in making things happen. 
And thanks to our sponsors, the Gin Society, Spartan Sports and O'Brien Beer. Make sure you hit subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts from. And do us a favour, hit five stars. And if you're passionate, leave a review. And come check us out on our socials. I'm at Lunch With Lee. Next week, we'll be changing some more top dogs, some complete legends about sport, music and business on another cracker episode of Lunch With Lee. We'll see you then. <laughs>